This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What happened in South Korea this past weekend? It sounds just like a horrific situation. More than 150 people killed in just a crush of people when there was a crowd surge with the tens and tens of thousands of people who were out celebrating Halloween over the weekend. Now, let's find out more about what it is that we know at this point. Vicki Barker joins us now, CBS correspondent for more on this. Vicki, good morning. Good morning, Cindy. So what do we know about what happened here? How did the crowd surge even start? There, very, very little, unfortunately. Um, the authorities are still trying to get to the bottom of this. Uh, South Korea has begun a week-long period of mourning. Um, it, it just seems to have been um, no one incident that triggered a stampede, for instance, which has sometimes happened in other cases of big crushes. It was just too many people trying to pack into too small a space. This, the nightclub district in Seoul, South Korea, um, is, a, is a series of narrow streets, and something like 100,000 people converged on this tiny neighborhood all at the same time, and the crush just got more and more and more intense. And what have we learned about, like, was there a police presence on the streets? I mean, with that many people, you, you would think there was a police presence out there. I, I'm not sure about that because, um, you know, Seoul is a it's, it's a pretty strong self-policing society. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I think that the crowds were, you know, egged on by the fact that this was the first Halloween weekend since COVID-19 restrictions were lifted. So I think the authorities were just unprepared for just how many young people were going to be converging on on that area. The latest death toll is 154 dead, something like 123 seriously injured. It's, it's, um, you know, I I think people there are still just trying to grasp that. Okay. And were there many, what do we know about people who are perhaps not from uh, South Korea who were killed? Were there a lot of foreigners here who well, were also lost? there were 26 off? foreigners. Yeah, 26 foreigners um, among the dead. No Canadians, as far as I know, two U.S. college students were there. And also, you know, the knock-on effect. Uh, I mean, one, one of the Korean nationals who was crushed to death, his girlfriend was in the United States and, you know, and found out when friends found his jacket and his cell phone um, on the ground. And later on, it was confirmed that he was among the dead. I mean, this, you know, tragedies like this always have these send out shockwaves, mm-hmm. you know, beyond those immediately, immediately, you know, on the scene. Oh, just a horrible situation. Vicki, thank you for mm-hmm. that update this morning. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, on this Monday morning, let's check in with our Raji Hall. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. I have uh, some embarrassing news out of uh, the UK to share about Liz Truss. I don't know how you narrow this down. 
How do you narrow down <laughs> this embarrassing news? There is this embarrassing list that has come out uh, because someone's writing a biography about her. Um, and it's it includes some of the demands that Liz Truss, the former British prime minister, if you can even call her that, uh, made on some of her trips, like her rider, basically. So it included independent coffee, so no Starbucks for her, which she would request as double espressos served in a flat white size to take away cup. She requested fresh sandwiches with all caps, no mayo. So she also requested chilled wine for overnights. She would not accept fruit for breakfast. And one of her former aides is quoted as saying she drinks about 42,000 espressos a day, or she used to when I worked for her. Uh, they also made fun of how she would sit there eating meatball sub or eat three croissants for breakfast, um, saying that no woman in her 40s should be eating that much and getting away with it. <laughs> I find this this whole list really entertaining. These are so entertaining. When I saw that you were going to be talking about this, I thought, oh, I got to read more about this. So I dug into some and I know the one that everybody always talks about is the green M&Ms one, right? And that was way, that was 40 years ago when that was Van Halen who on their mm-hmm. rider had apparently requested a bowl of M&Ms at each tour stop with the one particular color. In fact, for them, it was the brown ones that they wanted picked out of the bowl. And I know people were like, well, that's crazy, like these people. But it turns out that Van Halen later claimed that they had put that detail in there just to figure out which venues had actually read the rider and which had not. So it was like a test for people. Oh, hilarious. Well, can you imagine being the person tasked with having to put together these riders? And like as you're checking sandwiches for mayo or hand picking out certain colors of candies, you must just be like cursing the celebrity under your breath going, well, what does this person really even, you know, need all this for? I feel actually one one part of me did read the list and go, you know what? It's kind of respectable to have some particularities. And I have none. Like I've been in situations where I was happy to just have any, any food whatsoever, a bottle of water. Great. I remember once I was on set, uh, it was for a TV show and we went, there was no union or anything like that. We went 12 hours without a single snack, no water, no food whatsoever. It was like emaciated by the end of it. If someone had thrown me a bone, any kind of bone, I would have gone for it. No kidding. Like, yes, feed. If there's food of any kind, I think that's amazing. If you're doing a, doing an event or something like that, just, yeah, co- like common things, just have some common sense, some water, some food, you know, just something like that. But some of these are, are really quite funny. I was also reading about Weird Al Yankovic, who there was a period of time when, you know, Weird Al was huge, uh, that he would request in his writer one, quote, garish Hawaiian shirt at every appearance. <laughs> and then he had to stop because he accumulated so many of them that his wife is still like continuing still to donate some of those to charity because he has just so many Hawaiian shirts as a result. You do wonder if some of these celebrities actually, you know, read their writer. Is it for them or is it perhaps for their their entourage, right? Are they do is it their entourage who says, Yeah, I don't want this in there. I'd like to drink this particular type of alcohol. Well, I have heard from friends who have uh from friends in high places who've been around Drake that he actually his rider is 
full of stuff for his team that he in fact himself is not like crazy picky but that there are members of his team who want certain things and so he he does exactly that he asks for stuff for them and I am so curious Simi what would you put on your rider that's a very good question I actually read Drake's rider earlier and it is all very specific alcohol that he wants (laughs) it is it's like a Heineken beer and particular types of tequila and particular types of like brandy or cognac. Like he's very, very particular about alcohol and it feels like that's really about all. But for mine, I think mine would just be water. Um, tea. And, like tea perhaps, like orange pico. I guess I would have to specify orange pico because sometimes if you ask for tea, they put, you know, they'll put Earl Grey there. They'll put herbal tea. But I really, I just want some orange pico, like red rose. Totally happy with that. Um, and milk and sugar, I think that's probably really about it's maybe some snacks, maybe some sandwiches. That'd be nice. Some chips. Particular no, chips. no chips, nothing too salty. You're right. Now look at me developing my rider right I'm here. I'm looking for it. What yeah. would you, what would you put on yours? I'd have to have matcha. And unfortunately I would be very specific about how the matcha has to be prepared. It has to be hand whisked. Um, I'd have to have almond milk with it, but then beyond my matcha, I'm good. I'm good. Just that's like, it. Yeah, sure. I just need a matcha. So you want somebody standing by to hand whisk your matcha, but that's it. Yeah. And it better be quality, organic, ceremony grade matcha to me, but yeah. Okay. So (laughs) you are particular. (laughs) That's, that's very particular about that. So you don't want to be like Jennifer Lopez, who apparently has a request for an all white dressing room at whatever venue she is performing no all white that's white candles white candles tables couches drapes tablecloths and flowers everything has to be white because it keeps her mind at ease and keeps her relaxed that's how she does it please i would hate to see one for someone like beyonce because that creativity has got to come from somewhere and you'd imagine that they'd really need a controlled environment. I can tell you Beyonce's actually i looked i found it. it i looked it up beyonce likes to have her dressing room set at must be at 78 degrees so what is that? That's very warm. That's like, what, 24, right? Minus 30. That's, yeah. yeah, that's somewhere around there. So she likes to have, it has to be at 78 degrees. She also likes to have on available to eat, maybe not for her, but for whoever, well-seasoned chicken. She has to have well-seasoned chicken and also absolutely no Coca-Cola products. It has to be all Pepsi because she has a deal with Pepsi. There you go. You're right? picking up some new ideas for yourself. I really am not. I really am not. <laughs> but thank you. The tea suggestion is a good one. Raji, thank you for that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know what else it's also the season of right now? Bats, of course, right? We see bat imagery everywhere at this time of year. Well, that's why it's a good time for us to talk about the threats that are posed to bats right now, particularly here in BC. In fact, the Invasive Species Council of BC says there is an invasive plant there that is actually fatal to bats and is causing quite a few problems. Joining us now is Mandy Kellner, who's a wildlife biologist with BC's Community Bat Program. Mandy, thanks for being with us. Oh, hi. Thanks for talking about bats today. Well, first of all, what is the Community Bat Program? 
we are a network of, of smaller bat programs across the province that work with people who have bats in their, their, or on their property or who want to have bats on their property um, and help them with habitat enhancement or answer questions they have. Okay, so there are people who want to have bats on their property? <laughs> Quite a few, actually. Yeah, bats eat insects, and who wants all those mosquitoes, right? Oh, that is actually a great idea. So you help people do that? Uh, we help, uh, yeah, we'll offer advice and try and build up bat-friendly habitats. And, yeah, one of our focuses this year has been bat-friendly gardening, which is how the invasive species topic came up. Oh, that is pretty cool. Yeah, let's talk about these invasive plants. What are we talking about here? Uh, We are talking about burdock, and I am not an invasive plant specialist. I'm a bat person, but um, yeah, this is a big, uh, boisterous, invasive plant that grows in disturbed areas, and it has really prickly, sticky seed heads on it uh, with little hooks on it, and those hooks are actually the, the inspiration for Velcro. That's how sticky it is. Okay, so what happens to bats then when they run into this? Well, I think bats are actually really good at seeing where they're going and um, avoiding obstacles. Like they've got actually pretty good eyesight and they use echolocation. But we do have a number of species that glean. So that means they pick insects off of um, leaves or plants. And uh, if a bat is coming too close, probably to do that, the the Velcro-like seed pods on this plant, this burdock, can stick to their their wings or their fur, and then they get stuck there. That's terrible. So is this proving to be a problem for bats out there? It's it's pretty gruesome. Um, Yeah, we don't know how much of a problem it is. We do get reports from the public, not usually very many, but they, they trickle in. And it's something that's been coming in for a number of years. And I happen to mention it to... Um, people who work on invasive species, and, and that's how the article resulted. So it's really great to, to highlight this threat, which is in addition to the many other threats bats are facing. I wouldn't say this is the, the biggest problem bats are facing by any means, but it's just one other way we can help bats by taking care of our invasive species. Yeah, I was just reading about this particular one too. So burdock, each individual plant of burdock can produce up to 16 thousand seeds so i can see why that has become an invasive plant out there so if we see burdock on our property then would it be helpful mandy to bats if we just got rid of it if we just dug it up or or, or like did what we had to do to get rid of it definitely yeah yeah it's not a a difficult plant to remove and you want to dig it out roots and all and then um i think the general recommendation for getting rid of invasive plants you've dug up is to actually bag them and take them to the landfill uh, so don't put them in your compost, don't throw them in a the back alley, whatever. You need to make sure you've contained all the, the, all the parts of the plant and disposed of it properly. The Invasive Species Council of BC has great information on managing plants like burdock. But yeah, taking out any burdock would definitely be beneficial to bats in the neighbourhood. It really is. And, you know, we were talking about it, so I looked it up, and then as soon as I saw the pictures of it, I thought, oh, I know this plant. I have seen this plant everywhere. And so, yes, they would like people to dig that up and get rid of it. Uh, But for bats right now, what are some of the other threats that are going on, Mandy? Well, we have the ongoing human (laughs) expansion of humans that we all know about. We need houses to live. We're building roads. We're clearing forests. So that's um, kind of an ongoing background threat. But Bats are also facing white-nose syndrome, which is an invasive fungal disease that's really not far from the border in the States. It's spreading um, north from down in Washington. And that's a a disease that only affects bats, but it has really high mortality. And um, 
It causes them to wake up in the winter when they're hibernating and use up their energy. So uh, there's not much we can do about it at this point. Uh, but we are asking people to keep an eye out for any unusual bat activity this winter and report any dead bats, and we can send them for testing. Okay, what would we classify that was unusual bat activity? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Uh, down on the south coast there, we do get bats flying around a little bit in winter, especially on warmer days. They might come out to get a drink or see if there's any insects active that they can snack on. Um, but if we get repeated sightings in the same area or a large number of bats seen in one spot that would be unusual and then if you're outside of the lower mainland any bat flying around in winter is usually a good thing to report okay uh, so in what conditions do bats thrive what what is best for them <laughs> uh, our, we have so many bats in, in the province we have 15 different species and they all like uh, slightly different things if I had to say in general, the, it would be a place with some fresh water, um, lots of insects to eat. Um, pallid bats in the Okanagan also eat scorpions, and a lot of our bats eat spiders. So um, anything like that, you know, like a wetland making lots of insects would be great for little brown bats. And then they need somewhere to sleep that's safe and secure. So uh, forests provide a lot of roosting habitat. It's called roosting when they hang up during the day. Um, tree, old trees with loose bark, woodpecker cavities, that kind of thing. Some of our bats like rocky bluffs. Um, yeah, okay. that's basically the three things is food, water, and somewhere to sleep. You clearly are very passionate about bats, Mandy. Why? What is it about bats that you love so much? <laughs> Part of it is the mystery. They're, you know, we don't see them, we don't hear them normally, but they're actually all around us. And uh, just eating insects all night long, it's, they're truly amazing. Um, they're like little flying grizzly bears in, in like their biology is just so interesting. They're, they're very long lived. They're usually only have one pup a year. Um, they can echolocate. Like they're just, yeah, so many cool things. They, and why do you think they get, why are people afraid of them? I think it's that same reason. It's the mystery of not seeing and hearing them and this thing fluttering by you in the dark. They could be quite surprising and, uh, yeah, they're just not familiar. All right. So given that this is kind of like the bat time of year, Mandy, what would you like all of us to remember about bats? <laughs> Probably that um, they're not out to get humans and that they actually really need our help. That's a good thing for us to remember. Thank you so much, Mandy. Okay. Well, thanks for the bat chat. <laughs> a bat chat. That's exactly what we just had. That is Mandy Kellner, wildlife biologist with BC's Community Bat Program. This is Mornings with Simi. I just spent that entire newscast reading through the ghost stories that people are writing to me with. They are phenomenal. Clearly, quite a few of you out there have had some kind of paranormal or even creepy experience that you will chalk up to something being haunted. Please send them to me, simi at cknw.com. Or better yet, call our buzz line, 604-331-2899, and tell me that ghost story, and we will play it coming up a little bit later on the show, so keep them coming. Right now, we turn our attention to what's going on in the news, and of course, it's no surprise to hear that we get these increasing concerns about crime in our communities, that business owners, say they are fed up with what they are seeing out there. And, you know, Vancouver's former deputy police chief said that he's actually received pushback from the BC Prosecution Service over these calls and perhaps, you know, mounting public pressure to try to do more to keep prolific offenders in 
custody, particularly those who repeatedly breach bail conditions. And we have seen example after example of that, just leading to like a lot of frustration, I think, in the community. And the person who is talking about this is Doug Lepard. Those comments came after he co-authored a provincial government commission report on repeat offenders and random violence too. Talk more about this. Mike Morris joins us now, the BC Liberal MLA and public safety critic. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Timmy. So let's talk more about this. When you see and hear these comments from someone like Doug Lepard, what goes through your mind? Uh, he's right on the money. Uh, there are The authorities exist under the criminal code today, despite uh, Bill C-75, uh, to give prosecutors the opportunity to present evidence to uh, hold somebody in court if, uh, if they have the record uh, for that. And it also provides the powers for the judge or justice to... Uh, to hold somebody in custody if they've been in breach of a summons, appearance notice, undertaking, or any of those administrative of justice uh, uh, offenses that we have out there. So the powers are already there. It's just that uh, for some reason, uh, the Attorney General doesn't want uh, prosecutors to enforce them. Okay, now is that uh, is that appropriate then? Is that something that has been done in the past? Like, can the Attorney General say to the Prosecution Service, we would like you to do, you know, X, Y, Z? Uh, you bet. You know, attorney generals have always provided direction to prosecution services uh, uh, ever since the Crown Counsel Act came in in 1974. Prior to that, the police used to lay all the charges. But, uh, um, you know, they, they came out with domestic violence uh, policy a number of years ago, directing that charges will be laid in every uh, every instance of domestic violence. So there's nothing that, they, uh, that should stop them from uh, asking the prosecutors to ensure Prolific offenders are kept in custody. Okay, so how do we do that then? What what would or what should the Attorney General then, what kind of direction should they give to the prosecution service? I think what they should do is just say, you know, prosecutors, just go ahead and do your job. You know, under, um, under the criminal code, I think it's Section 523, but it gives the judge the power to uh, hold people in custody for breaching summonses and whatnot, like I mentioned. But also under that particular section, it also says that the prosecutor must show cause why the detention of the accused is, is justified. And, uh, and there's uh, public safety is one of the issues, and bringing the administration of justice into uh, a disrepute is another one of the uh, um, issues they need to consider, as well as to ensure that the, appear, or pardon me, the accused is going to appear in court. So if the prosecutor can show reasons why those three areas are going to be breached, then the judge has the authority to hold them in custody. Okay, do other provinces do this? You know, I've just, I haven't looked at the statistical data for the other provinces, but I have heard some of the news stories where, you know, the provinces are back up to the same levels of incarceration that they were before COVID, and we're still down about 50%. Okay, so BC does seem like statistically we are a bit of an outlier on that. So then what, like, what is the holdoff here? Like, my, why is this happening? Why can't we say that to the prosecution service? Well, there's no reason why we can't. You know, I think our, the previous attorney general, and of course this one I think is guided by the previous attorney general as well, is still entrenched in the, uh, in the doctrine that he had subscribed to when he was with the BC Civil Liberties Society and also Pivot Legal Society. So uh, I think he has to get over that and he has to let the prosecutors do their job. Is there room to do that? Is there uh, room with the, you know, I know we always hear about the federal government's legislation on bail conditions. That's always cited as a reason why we can't do that. And is there room to incarcerate more people? 
Oh, of course there is. In our, our number one, our correctional facilities uh, have the availability in them. But we also have to keep in mind that the the courts, the Supreme Court of Canada, um, and the federal government, when they pass Bill C seventy five. Um, never pass legislation and never make judgments that would leave the police, the prosecutors and judges powerless to enforce the law on prolific offenders. So everything is in place. The criminal code still provides those authorities and uh, for the police and for prosecutors and for the judges. So all we have to do is just do it. All right. So then that is the push then going forward. Is this something that you feel could it change is it, if enough pressure is applied? Do you get a sense that that could happen? That could change tomorrow. It could change today if there was the political will to do it. All right. Listen, thanks very much for talking to us about it. You bet. My pleasure. Mike Morris, BC Liberal, MLA and public safety critic, talking about the ability that the Attorney General has, the provincial government has, to offer more direction to the BC Prosecution Service about keeping prolific offenders, including those who repeatedly breach bail conditions, in custody more. And yes, that is a hot topic right now. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. There's one song I never get tired of hearing ever. It is the greatest. Well, it's going to be a very, very busy night tonight for fire departments. They'll be out on patrol. It is one of their busiest nights of the year. And our contributor, Raji Silhal, is with us now for more on that. So, Raji, are you the trick-or-treating parent today, or are you the stay-home-and-give-out-candy parent? So, unfortunately, I am going to be the stay-at-home parent giving out candy, um, and that's sad because trick-or-treating is the best. I really agree with you that today is the funnest day of the year, but it's also uh, one of the days of the most calls to the fire departments. They are going to be so busy, as you said, tonight, and so they shared some awesome reminders with me. Now, Simi, I always use a real candle in our pumpkins. I just love the effect. I love even especially like on a dark rainy night mm. to see the glow of the the real candle in a jack-o'-lantern uh but this year we're just going to play it safer and we're just going to go with one of those uh you know dollar store deals um where you just plug in a battery operated one and i i feel good about that because i learned more about the risk of using uh real ones when i talked to dave owens he's the deputy fire chief in north vancouver here are his tips around candles Candles, whether they're too close to something that's combustible or whether, you know, a child's costume kind of drapes over top, um, it is definitely a concern during Halloween. But we recommend that they use, uh, you know, battery candles inside uh, the pumpkins and through their decorations um, as a much safer alternative to using candles. Um, Especially if you are going to use a a real candle, is just to really make sure that they're uh, kept far away from anything combustible. So any decorations... Um, any curtains or anything that uh, that might burn. And then so that must mean that if it's around your stoop, you'd actually want it far away from the door because kids would be coming up to the door. Absolutely. So you want to make sure you keep the steps clear, right? Because it's going to be dark and rainy. And uh, so we want to keep the, the pumpkins uh, out of the path of travel um, not uh, and not sort of uh, where it might impact the ability for the kids to get up and down if you have stairs out front. That's good advice. 
Yeah. And so I'm, I'm giving up and, and giving in to the battery powered one this year. And then we also talked about fireworks. Now they're banned, but Simi, they keep going off. In fact, I've heard them uh, every night <laughs> yes. for the last week. Uh, people, it's just so hard for people to change something that feels like tradition, I think. But uh, fireworks, are they're just so risky. There's so much danger around them. Here's Dave again. The propensity for danger, uh, for injury around the use is is incredible. And, and especially when you see kids shooting them at each other, they don't really understand the significant risk around the use of fireworks. Uh, lots of cities banned them. The city of Vancouver uh, has banned them. Uh, last year was the first year. But the real risk around uh, typical fireworks is that the little ball of, of colored uh, material that shoots out uh, won't um stop burning until it until the fuel source burns out so if you get it caught in your clothing it would it will continue to burn even if you um put put it into water for example it's going to still burn and um you know if your clothes catch on fire and you can't get your clothes off in time that's the real risk there's also um you know risk around the the devices that um put off a lot of noise and uh we do see people sustaining sort of ear injuries to to the noise. People are already starting to set them off and people will set them off regardless of the fact that they're banned. Yeah, if you're if you are going to use fireworks, it's just to really make sure that you set the firework in a very solid uh, base that you're not holding it. That's by far the biggest injury is when people hold the fireworks. So, a bucket of sand, bury the fireworks. Keep people, uh, especially young children, far away. Um, keep your pile of fireworks far away, and uh, you know, be very safe when you when you light them. Those tips are funny because I have never seen them adhered to. Everything <laughs> you just described is the opposite of what I've seen people do. Yeah, you know, we I have witnessed um, people who do it, do it in a safe manner, um, but you're right; most people uh, don't really adhere to those safety tips. And I don't know, Roger, how you get through to people because people love, as you alluded to there, they love fireworks. There's something about them. It seems like a rite of passage for people or they just can't imagine this time of year without them. Um, and I don't, how do you convince people not to? I mean, people love them. They just go for it. You're right. And then people don't find out how they're supposed to use them properly. I've seen well-meaning people get really injured by using fireworks because they just didn't actually find out how to operate them properly. And actually, the fire chief told me that they're going to be out on patrol talking to people, not just giving tickets, but actually educating people on what they're doing with the fireworks, what they're doing incorrectly, and what they need to change about that. And then a big one, a big tip, Simi, for tonight is visibility. We haven't been used to it being dark and rainy because we had that drought for so long. And it's just been, you know, a week of us deep in the rain now. And it's going to be really, really dark. Here's Dave again. It's going to be dark. Uh, we want to make sure that our children are very visible on the street. Um, so um, reflective pieces to their clothing is very important. Um, a flashlight, not only so that the children can see where they're going up and down the dark stairs, for example, but also as they're crossing the road, they're very visible to the drivers. Um, so brightly colored, colored uh, costumes and, and a flashlight. Well, drivers really need to slow down and uh, be really alert uh, within their neighborhoods, especially at intersections. 
but also uh, recognizing that kids might run back and forth across the street, uh, not yeah. at section. So yeah, really, they will do that. Kids will be very unpredictable in their path. Yeah. So being very alert. Yeah. And then what do you think trick-or-treating houses can do to make their house safer for folks as they approach the doorstep? It's, uh, illuminating is really important. Trying to keep their walkways uh, bright. Um, some people want that dark image of Halloween, which is great, but trying to keep the pathways illuminated, um, removing items that could be tripped on from the walkways. If you've got little planters or little um, solar lights that are lining the, the sidewalk to perhaps remove those for Halloween, just so people don't trip and fall. Yeah, that's a good reminder, Simi. I leave my planters out. And until I heard Dave say that, I was like, oh, right, I should probably move those out of the way. Um, you wouldn't want someone to trip and fall. And then in terms of driving also, if you can, just avoid driving all together tonight. If you don't have a trick-or-treater yourself, yeah. but you're trying to get from point A to B, think about not driving tonight. Um, and the tip there to look both ways because kids and keep looking both ways is key because kids will just be so unpredictable tonight. They're going to be so excited. They're going to be running across the street. They'll suddenly dart into your path. And then he mentioned flashlights there. And I often do see parents out there with a flashlight, but I don't see the kids with a flashlight. And so, uh, you know, both of my trick-or-treaters tonight, they're going to have their flashlights. Dad will have his flashlight. And I think it also puts some onus and responsibility on the kid and, uh, to think about safety, to think about illuminating their own path as well. So flashlights for everyone. Uh, that's a great idea. Now, before I let you go this morning, Roger, that was all wonderful advice. Thank you. Uh, do you have any ghost story? That, did you ever had a paranormal experience that you would like to share with us? Yes. Oh, what happened? I feel like I should have asked you this earlier. What is it? Tell us. I was staying on Cortez Island and this was back before I felt like it was too busy, overwrought with tourists. And I stayed in a tree house. Basically, it was just like a slab of wood in a tree. And I stayed there by myself. Crazy person. And that evening, although it was summer, um, there was a visitor. There was a ghost. They came, they talked to me, they left. Okay, were you sleeping or were you awake? Come on. I was, Had you been drinking by yourself, Raji? Come on, tell us the truth. <laughs> I didn't drink. I was by myself and there was like a ghostly presence and I was about to fall asleep and there was a ghostly presence and then it was gone. I don't even believe in this stuff, Simi, but I'm going to tell know. you that night it happened. And never happened to you since? No, no. And but you felt wood, it that night. Wood, it's never. Oh, I 100% did. You are not alone. I just want to tell you that because I feel like all the emails I've gotten are similar to that one time only thing and it happens and then people become believers. Uh, thank you for that. Clearly, next time I see you, I'm going to be asking for more details on this. Raji, thank you. <laughs> Happy Halloween, Simi. You too. That's our Raji Soha there. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever had that creepy feeling that perhaps you are not alone somewhere and there's something you can't see out there? There are plenty of great haunted house stories, just paranormal experience stories out there. Keep yours coming because I'm going to read through some of them in a few minutes. Simi at cknw.com. But right now, Eve Lazarus is with us, of course, author and host of the Cold Case Canada podcast. Good morning, Eve. Hi, Simi. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. Is this your favorite time of year? It really is. Uh, it is my favorite time and also my first 
born was born on Halloween. You're kidding me. Yeah. Well, you know what? Congrats. Happy birthday to your son. It is the single greatest day of the year to have your birthday on. That is my belief. I think so. Yeah. We used to just throw him out and tell him to pick up his candy on the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk some haunted house stories because I know there's so many great ones out there. And even I know you collect these too, but can you think of one in particular that kind of gives you the creeps too when you think about it? Oh, my God, there's so many. Um, one of the ones, I just did a, a podcast, a Halloween special, and, and one of the ones that I'm really intrigued about is Overland. Do you know this one? It's in North Burnaby in that Vancouver Heights area near Boundary. No, tell me. It's, uh, I'd never heard of it until, you know, fairly quite recently. And it's a gorgeous old Tudor Revival mansion that was built in 1909. And originally, you know, the streetcar came out there and it was supposed to be this huge development like Shaughnessy, but that never took off and was owned by a tea merchant who then sold the house to um, the Sisters of Charity of Halifax and they ran a private girls' school for about 30 years. And then it sold to um, the Action Line housing that's seen as housing. But there's been all these sightings and one of them's Coughing Man. This Coughing Man's heard, you know, through the house and the kitchen and paranormal groups have gone out and got him on tape. And there's another, this five-year-old giggling girl that runs up and down stairs and apparently at least one cleaner has quit after seeing her because she'd run upstairs and just disappear into the wall. And um, it, it just such an interesting story and then the the paranormal investigators went out and actually got her on tape started doing the alphabet you know a b c d and apparently this little girl said s and uh, told them her age so you know i guess you've got to be a true believer creepy (laughs) to do that yeah there's another one too in burnaby that's um i find really fascinating it's um now the burnaby art gallery so it's over in the deer park area but it used to be Seppley House, and it was built by a woman called Grace Seppley. And this place, it's very similar in build. You know, it's an old mansion like Overland. I think it was designed by Samuel McClure, same architect. But it's the same creepy sort of foreboding feeling when you go into it, even though, you know, now it's sort of an art gallery and everything. But it's still got that sort of creepy feeling. And there's been all sorts of sightings. And all sorts of people have lived there, you know, from Grace died there in 1917 and she's seen all the time floating around in, you know, white and up in the top of the stairs and her face is seen in the windows. And um, after she died, it was sold to a group of Benedict monks and there's a monk that's been seen, you know, kneeling in the garden. And after that, it was sold to this... it's such an incredible history, but it was sold to this bizarre cult called the, Temp of the More, Temple of the More Abundant Life. And it was led by this guy called Archbishop John. And they lived there for a few years before he was outed for, for being a crook in the States. And uh, so there are sort of all these you know, crazy sightings of possible cult members and, and things like that. And they've even got a poltergeist in the basement that throws tools around. Really? Now, you've probably heard so many of these stories. Do you ever go to these places and do you ever have that weird feeling that, okay, there's something strange going on here? This is the only one. I'm not really sensitive to it at all, but I did um, this one I was just talking about, Sibley House. I went to a wedding there about 20 years ago and I, I hadn't heard any ghost stories at that point, but I remember going upstairs to sort of poke around 
and, and just getting that really eerie feeling like I've got to get out now. It just felt cold and, and, and just a bit creepy. And it's happened to me once at the, the Bent Mast in, in James Bay in Victoria, which is supposed to be haunted. And I just got that creepy, got to run out of here now feeling. Really? So somebody is like telling you to go. Yeah, just get out. <laughs> and you listen. You're like, yes, I'm going. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. And there doesn't seem to be any shortage, does there, of, of haunted house stories. And they all seem to be quite similar when you hear them. Like people have similar experiences there. Well, you hear a lot about the, the temperature dropping. So there's this huge, yes. this huge drop and it's really cold and chilly. Uh, lots of footsteps. I've got one on my blog this week about Glen Drive. And it's just a very simple house and the 3000 block in, in its van. And uh, a woman that bought it in 1984 had contacted me and said uh, they'd had all, you know, all sorts of crazy experiences where the mailbox would start clicking at six o'clock every night. And they'd actually get to the stage where they'd count down at two minutes to six. And uh, every night it would start clicking and they would um, hear footsteps, you know, when no one was there. And um, she actually had a sighting of this guy she thought to be in his late 60s in the house who appeared to be floating for, and she could only see him from sort of the knees up. Oh. And when she talked to a neighbour, she found out, you know, the, the guy that had lived there before fit the description. So yeah, that was oh. kind of really interesting. See, that's creepy. One, I thought. That is creepy. So, Eve, what is your website so people can check out some of these stories for themselves? Uh, just my name, evelazarus.com. Okay, I'm going to go read some more of these because this is a good day to do that. Thank you for sharing those with us this morning. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate that. That's Eve Lazarus. She is an author, historian, host of the Cold Case Canada podcast. And if you go to evelazarus.com, she has so many great ghost stories. By the way, that cold feeling, I think that's very, very common. I don't know if you've ever gone to the old spaghetti factory in Gastown, but they will tell you that they have a haunted, they have like a, a haunted space there at the old spaghetti factory. And that's the same thing that everybody says that they feel when they go back to that space is that they get ice cold. They feel that ice cold feeling there. That's a very common one. So many great ghost stories from you this morning, or just maybe not ghost stories, but creepy moments, unsettling moments that you have had out there that you are sharing. For instance, Steve wrote me and said, in the 1970s, I used to work at the old BC electric railway substation located in North Aldergrove when it was a glass tempering plant and glass production facility. It's now an historic building with an artist retreat, artist retreat, I should say. Uh, the last time he drove by, that's what he says he saw it there. Anyways, he says, I used to work there alone on Sunday sometimes, and I would hear glass crashing on occasion. He said, I would stop working, get up, go looking for broken glass, but never found anything. Later, he learned there had been a death very early last century in that building. He said it was and still is really creepy to be around there. That's a good one. Thank you, Steve. And then Wendy wrote me this creepy one. She said, I have a real ghost story. She said, she said, uh, girlfriend and I were doing the Grave Tales walk in Fort Langley, and there were 40 of us in the group this year. We went to three graveyards, and at the third one, they saw a gravestone for a child of four who had been buried and who died in the early 1900s. There was a playground right there with a tire swing on chains, and she said, suddenly, it moved on its own. Not like slowly, she was saying. It moved like very fast, stopped, and then started again. 
She said all 40 of them witnessed it and they were really spooked. And she said when we left, it slowed down really slow and then stopped. She said it was so weird. Uh, That, Wendy, would freak me out. First off, good on you for even doing the graveyard walk. I know lots of people love to do that, but that is also a creepy one. Thank you. Kelly wrote me to say one night my husband and I were watching TV. Nothing on, no, just lights on. No ceiling fan, no AC, no stand-up fan, not a vent in the kitchen. She said nothing. So the air, her point here, air was very still. She said plastic bag on the table kind of rustled and they both looked. It floated up in the air, she said, like straight up, moved away from the table, and she said, and then fell to the ground like there was a bowling ball in it. She said, I, you know, I was a believer, but I always questioned that nothing happens when there's a witness or in two people. Now, she said, I am a more of a believer than ever. Creepy, Kelly, thank you for those stories. I keep them coming because I'd love to hear them. Simi at cknw.com.